welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Alrighty, friends. If you want to make your way back to your seats, that would be wonderful. Uh, good morning, Awaken. My name is Micah, if we have not met. Um, nice to see you all. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been around Awaken long, you, you might know that during Advent, we often do a series connected to Advent uh, where we invite artists in our community to create around the themes of Advent. And this year, our series is entitled Hidden. And so uh, we have two pieces in the back from the last two weeks. And then today, uh, Wendy, uh, who I would like to invite, if you would please welcome Wendy Bartell to share a little bit about her work this morning. Good morning. So when I was thinking about what I wanted to paint, I reread the story um, in Matthew where it talks about the Magi coming. And one thing I noticed was um, how it mentions that they come to a house rather than like kind of the temporary thing that they were in when they first got to Bethlehem. And then also how later on in this story, um, when Herod decides that he wants to like kill all the infants in Bethlehem, um, that it's, he tells them to kill all the children from birth till the age of two years. And um, so I was like, well, that means that they've kind of been settled for a while in Bethlehem. And then I was just thinking of kind of this journey that um, this young family went through, how they, they had come to this city kind of not really planned necessarily, um, and then have to leave again unexpectedly. And they were essentially made refu refugees, fleeing for their lives. And I thought it was such a beautiful paradox the God known as our refuge, embodying in a person now seeking refuge. Um, so I just kind of love that um, identification he has with us in our difficulty. And so this painting is called Refuge Seeking Refuge. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, so welcome to Advent, week three, friends. If you didn't grow up in a liturgical setting like myself, uh, the church calendar is this device, this way by which the church and God's people continue to sort of navigate and find themselves in the story written in scriptures. Uh, scripture could be uh, maybe named or identified as the, the, the recollection of God's redemptive action in and through the world. And so the church calendar is this way by which we remember and locate ourselves in that story. And Advent is the beginning of that um, in the, in the scriptures, you, you have the prophets who are reminding and sort of casting this vision for this king who will come, this Messiah who will come, and when he does, will bring a kingdom that, whose reach has no end and, and is marked by justice for the oppressed and peace and flourishing for all of humanity. And Christ, at Christmas, is the fulfillment of that promise. And so Advent, the beginning of the church calendar, is that four weeks before the moment when that all happens. And so... Traditionally, we light these candles uh, to symbolize hope, joy, love, and peace, and we ready our hearts for this thing that is about to happen. And so, this morning, we continue in our series entitled Hidden. We're, we're looking at the, the characters around the story, so maybe the supporting cast or the secondary characters. We've looked at the shepherds in week one who were watching their flocks by night, and last week we looked at Zechariah, who is the husband of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist. And this week, I want to spend some time with the Magi in Matthew's account. Now, interestingly, the Magi only show up in Matthew. 
There are two birth accounts, Matthew and Luke, and Luke is the more famous one. Luke 2 is often read, you know, in, in this, the time of Caesar Augustus, the census was sent out, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's Luke, and no mention at all of the Magi. So only in Matthew do we get any mention of these people who come to the, the, the birth event of Christ. And in terms of like Christmas stuff and the things surrounding Christmas, I would argue that there's no more debated people and topic and um, maybe visit than those than this one from the Magi. There are so many divergent views, and I I went like around and around and down so many rabbit trails this week to no avail. Uh, like, was it a star? Was it a comet? Was it a constellation in the sky? Was it like an astrological event, a, a celestial event where planets lined up and it made the stars brighter than they would have normally appeared and it happened just so then? All theories about this event, you know, some say it wasn't an, a star because a star doesn't like move and then stop, right? But that's what the text says. Uh, so some say it's an angel because that could be how that word is translated. Be that as it may, friends, I don't want to add my, my thoughts to that this morning because there's a lot there. But I want to ask a question about Matthew and why he tells the story with these people the way that he does. Every gospel writer has an audience, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, four gospels. They all tell the story of Jesus, but they're all writing to different people and for different purposes. Mark and Luke clearly are written for Gentile readers, people who weren't a part of, the, uh, of Israel. They weren't Jewish. Uh, God-fearing people who are interested in the God of Israel, but not Jews ethnically. Matthew, on the other hand, is specifically written for Jews. We know that for a number of reasons, but one obvious one is how he starts. In Matthew chapter 1, if you've ever read it, it's a long list of people who begat others. This person begat this person. They had that. They were born to them, right? Da-da-da-da, down the line. And he goes all the way back to Abraham, like Genesis chapter 12, my kind of guy. And he says, this whole story begins with Abraham and it goes all the way through these people. And who he puts in the lineage and who he leaves out is a really fascinating study, maybe for another time. Um, some characters in this lineage. But it goes through David, you know, that the, that the Messiah will come through the line of David and voila, here we have Jesus. That's Matthew trying to say Jesus is Jewish and he's the promised Messiah of the Jewish scriptures. So, I want to ask some questions about Matthew in particular and why he tells this story the way he does with those three characters. Herod, the Magi, and the Jewish religious, um, well, let's call them establishment, the teachers of the law. So, let's get to it. You with me? If you can, I'd invite you to stand for the reading of the text, and we're in Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem... In the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Having been warned in a dream to not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Pray with me. God, this morning as we spend some time in this story and uh, we navigate our way through Advent, I pray that uh, this year you would um, speak clearly, uh, that you would find us where we are, that you would whisper, um, invite, encourage, remind us of who you are and who we are, who you've made us to be. So Holy Spirit, I ask that what needs to happen this morning in this gathering would happen by your, by your power and by your direction, that you would uh, take the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart and do what you see fit to do. I pray in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So as I said, I don't want to add to the debate about all of the things related to this text, like who were these guys and where did they come from and how did this celestial event take place, but rather I want to ask some questions about Matthew. Before we do that, we can say a couple of things that we know for sure. First and foremost, these were not kings. Um, sorry to the author of We Three Kings of Orient Are. I remember as a kid, I was in a musical performance, you know, uh, like elementary school, very young, and we had to learn the song, We Three Kings of Orientar, and I, I thought that that was all one word, Orientar, or, or that like these people were covered in tar, or that like, should I even be saying this word, Orientar, you know, like, it's just such a weird word, and a, kind of an odd melody, right? We Three Kings of Sufyan does a great job with it, but, um, you know, uh, it, it's not my favorite Christmas song, and they weren't kings. Um, Matthew, in, 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 in Greek, uses the word magos, or magi, magos is the plural, magi is the singular, and it literally means the name given by Babylonians, Medes, Persians, and others to wise men, teachers, priests, physicians, astrologers, seers, interpreters of dreams, soothsayers. Here's a great word. Use that in a sentence this week, I dare you. Uh, or sorcerers, right? These guys were not kings. They were astrologers. They were interpreters of dreams. They were sorcerers in some way. Uh, but they were not kings. Maybe they were sent by kings, but they weren't kings. Uh, and where they came from is really kind of a mystery. Some people believe they came from the east, like Persia, Babylon, somewhere over there in the Orient. Some people would argue that they actually came from the northwest, and they saw the star rising in the east and went to it. Like I said, lots of debate, lots of people fighting over what actually happened, and no one really knows. Um, but we know that they weren't kings. We can say that for sure. We can also know that um, maybe there were three but maybe there were more. We all assume that there were three because it's gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Like three gifts, one for each person. But have you ever gone in on a gift with someone? 
I mean, come on. You know, like the company gift, like every 12, 20 people go in on one gift. It's possible that that could have happened. And nowhere in the text anywhere in this or other sources do we get a number except for the fact that Matthew uses a plural so we know it's more than one. That's all we know. Some people, one, one, one guy argued like vehemently that it was 12, you know? And I say like, why not a baker's dozen? <laughs> Either way, uh, there were a number of them. They brought these gifts. Uh, they weren't kings. And for sure, they should not be in the nativity scene, <laughs> you know? Like, I, I remember the, the, my mom's, like, vividly, the nativity that she would put out, like, in our house, and it had this low-pitched roof and the little barn, you know, and inside was Mary and Joseph and little baby Jesus, six pound, eight ounces in the manger, and the animals were there, and, of course, you had the shepherds, and the wise men, the magi, were there. But clearly, when reading the text, we know that they were not at the birth event, friends. They were not there, so they shouldn't be in the nativity scene, so if you want a historically accurate nativity, get rid of the Magi, and you should probably add some people of color, honestly, because the, most nativity scenes are horribly inaccurate in that way, right? These were not Swedish people with sashes, okay? This is not, not how it went down. So what we do know, Magi, astrologers, like people who read the stars, see a star, see some kind of celestial event, and they know that, and Israelites as well, people in the ancient world, they, they did believe that like the stars corresponded to historical events in some way, shape, and form. So they see this thing and they follow it. It leads them to Palestine, to Jerusalem. They go to the capital, which is of course where you would assume the big event where the king was going to be born would happen. They seek out Herod, which would have been customary because he's the king of the Jews. He's the ruler, the appointed ruler of the Jewish people. And Herod then gathers the Torah scholars, the scribes and the teachers of the law to say like, where will the child be born if this is supposed to happen? And they're like, well, duh, Micah told us, you're welcome, it's going to happen in Bethlehem. So they go to Bethlehem, they find the baby, they give the gifts, warned in a dream, they, are, they don't go back to where they came from because Herod ends up, well, we know how that goes. And, uh, and Mary and Joseph are warned in a dream, like flee before this thing goes bad. Herod loses his mind, decree to kill all the babies. By the way, many would argue that like we're talking single digits of people. Bethlehem is like East Bethel, you know? I mean, it's, just a, it's like hardly on the map. So there weren't like hundreds and hundreds of babies. Likely it was a, a handful. Uh, but it does, it does sound a lot like another story that we've heard before, right? With Moses and Egypt and there's so many parallels happening there. Another sermon for another day. Uh, but these guys, Mary and Joseph, they leave, they flee, they become refugees, asylum seekers in Egypt for a period of time until Herod dies, and then they come back, Jesus is raised in Nazareth, the rest is history, as they say. That's what we know, and what we don't know. Now, what about Herod, what about the Magi, and what about these religious teachers of the law and scribes and folks who studied Torah. What about them? A little background for Matthew. As I mentioned before, he's writing to a largely Jewish audience. He uses the lineage of Jesus to say Jesus is Jewish. He's the Messiah that's been promised by the prophets. He's the one who will bring peace. He's the Isaiah guy. He's the Jeremiah guy. He's the guy. Um, and so, I want you to try to like climb into the shoes of the people who heard it first. Like try to understand, try to see it through the people Matthew was writing to. 
right? Who are these people, Herod and the Magi, and, and your friends, your Torah scholars? When we read stories, we often, and I, and I, and I would say, uh, I, I think pretty confidently I can say this, like, we as humans, we love a good binary, you know? In, out, black, white, left, right, red, blue, uh, good, bad. We love to be able to determine and distinguish who's in and who's out and where people are, where I am. And I want to suggest, my experience has been that wisdom often exists just beyond the binary. And while it's easy for us to want to say, like, who's the good guy in this story? Who's the bad guy? Clearly, right? Herod's bad. The Magi are good. The, the religious leaders are a bit indifferent. God is with the Magi. God is not with Herod. But, like, can I, can I invite you to maybe suspend that judgment for a moment and really explore who are these people and how would the people who heard the story first have thought about these folks and what is Matthew trying to tell us about these folks? Let's start with Herod. Herod gets a bad rap sometimes, I think. Understandably so. This guy was a little paranoid. He was a, he was a real clutcher and grabber of power. Uh, he, he was often threatened by others. He killed some of his own family members to protect his own power. So, yeah, he was a little bit of a psychopath at the end. Okay, fine. But, like, he wasn't always a bad king. He wasn't always evil all the way through. Like, he was, he was a kid. He grew up. He played with his brothers. He drove his parents crazy, right? He pulled pranks. At some point, maybe some things happened along the way that made him who he was, but he's not evil all the way through. In fact, some would argue that Herod wasn't a terrible king at all in, this, in the course of Israel's history. One commentator says, you should remember that Herod was called Herod the Great for good reason. He deserved it. He was, not only, he was the only ruler of Palestine who ever succeeded in keeping peace for any length of time. Uh, he brought order to a very disordered situation. He was one of the most prolific and like, uh, uh, noted builders and architects of the ancient world. Today, even to this day, there are structures that he built that still stand. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, I highly recommend, there's a, a, a temple like wall tour where you can go below the Wailing Wall, if you've ever seen pictures where they stuff the prayers in the, in the wall. Just below that, underneath the ground, is the actual temple mount that you can go and see and you can put your hands on. Like, like a giant retaining wall with rocks, stones as large as pickup trucks. They stack these things on top of one another with just unbelievable accuracy, hand-carved by, like, people, and then moved not with tools and, you know, impact drivers, but, like, horses and levers and pulleys, and the thing still stands to this day. Like, I've put a couple retaining walls up, and they all fall over, like, you know, in, like, 10 years, but thousands of years. Masada, the great fortress at Masada, that's, that's Herod. Caesarea, the port, that's Herod. He was, a, he was insanely good at building. And he brought jobs, he brought prosperity, he brought, you know, some level of peace. Israel had far worse kings than this guy, right? Um, evidently, he could be quite generous. At times when um, he would cancel taxes, when things got really hard, so it would be easier for the people. In a famine in 25 BC, he actually took his own gold and melted it and bought food for the people. That's not so bad. 
He was the guy who called the, the Torah scholars and the prophets, like, where, where will he be born? He gathered that group of people. He knew where to look to find the answers. Now, of course, we know how the story ends, and we know Herod's true intentions, but for the people who heard it first, is he the good guy or is he the bad guy? Is He was a generous king at times and successfully established peace and brought profit and building campaigns who sought counsel from the religious authorities and wanted to worship the newborn king. What about the Magi? Right? These guys, these sort of mysterious people, uh, magicians, astrologers, they were pagans. They were from the outside of in. They were uh, uh, likely, I think the most likely is like from Babylon, Persia, up north and to the east. And one author says, in the opinion of the people of Israel, magi were idolaters, short and simple. Magi were officially considered people who looked and taught others to look at beggarly creatures rather than the Creator and Torah for guidance. They looked at their own calculations and wisdom and mental creations to deliver meaning to things. Official Israel deeply despised the magicians and astrologers of the Gentiles. They felt that God had rescued his people from the tyranny of the stars and those who claimed to know their secrets. Now, like I said, some in Israel at this time, they did think that the stars were connected to events, but Israel made a very clear distinction between the creator and the created, which these pagan astrologers did not. First commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right? They were idol worshipers. They were pagans. They were on the outside. They were not Jewish. And yet it appears that they're the only ones who can hear the song that's playing. What about the religious elite? What about the establishment? What about the priests and the pastors, right? the Torah scholars? They've got all the texts. They have it all right there. Herod calls them and says, this child will be born. This prophecy is going to happen. Where will it happen? And they're like, no, duh, it's in Bethlehem. The prophet Micah tells us. And yet, isn't it funny that in, any, in both of the accounts, the birth accounts, there are no Jewish officials present. There are no people from the inside who make it to this event that changes the world. All the people on the inside who would have known the answers and had the information and who were in were nowhere to be found. How fascinating is that? And how and why is Matthew telling this story the way that he is? Herod, who maybe is the good guy, he's a generous king at times. The Israelites, the people who had the Torah themselves, completely indifferent and absent. And then Herod ends up trying to kill the Messiah king. And the outsiders, the ones who are not at the table, the ones who have the, you know, the strikes against them, pagan idol worshipers, are the only ones who can hear the song that's playing. So who have we ruled out? And maybe... Matthew's gospel and birth account is inviting us to consider seeing it a little differently. Like, we love to say in, out, light, dark, right? But is it possible that there's a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness in each of these characters? And is it possible that there's a little bit of light and a little bit of darkness in you and in me? I mean, at my best, it's not too bad. Gotta be honest, 
you know? Like when I get my hair cut and I get a, you know, I, it's pretty good. But like at my worst, friends, like embarrassing. Who's next? You see, we love to do that. Oh, yeah, they're, they don't get it. They don't see. They don't, they've, yeah, they voted for him. They voted for her. We love to do that. And Matthew's gospel is just a clarion call, like a smack in the face. Hey, stop doing that. It's not only not helpful, but like... You without sin cast the first stone, right? God seems to continually be upending the way in which we see and inviting us to see differently. The way in which we hear and experience and and, and show up in the world, God and Matthew and the scriptures seem to continually be offering there's a different way to see this. It, the, the wisdom, that which is worth holding and, and, and savoring is just beyond the binary. Whatever way in which you split the world into. Let me close with two observations from this passage that I think are worth thinking about. The first of which is the music is always playing and the invitation is always happening. The question is can you hear it? Like, it's not whether or not God is up to something. It's not whether or not. God doesn't show up to places, right? I love that one. Like, oh, man, I went to church last week and God showed up. That is terrible theology. It's just really bad because it assumes God is not here and then God's like, hey, everybody, I made it, right? There is no square. There's no moment. There's no inch. There's no, like, space that God does not occupy and isn't present to, if, if, that, if, if that isn't true, then, then the God that we talk about is seriously compromised, right? So God doesn't show up, but you and I show up. We see things differently. We listen and we tune in and we hear. The, the prophet says, tune your hearts to my voice. Like, listen to what I'm saying to you. It's not whether or not God is present and offering God's self to you. It's like, are you tuned in? What does that require? What, how, how does one do that? That's the spiritual life. That's why disciplines are important and helpful because they help us like tune in and center and stop for a moment so that we can have a chance to hear what often is a very still and small voice. So the music's always playing and the invitation is always happening. But So, okay, uh, just the other night on Friday, we went to this party. It was great. I had so much fun. I love a good party. Uh, a few of us awakened folks were there, and uh, including Jenna and Mandy and myself, um, and it involved, Melody was there, she, she helped host the party, and a great story, like, you know, family piano, which, you know, dad used to play and sing around, is now in this house of the daughter, and like, this is the first time we're all gonna, like, light this thing up, and we're gonna sing and carol around. It was lovely, it was so beautiful. We sang Christmas carols, we did a rendition of the 12 Days of Christmas like I've never seen in my life. Like each of the things, you know, the first day of Christmas, true love gave to me a partridge and a pear tree. And somebody had to like do the partridge and the pear tree thing. And then like two turtle doves. And then Jenna and Mandy and I were the three French hens. And so 
every time that that happened, like the three pastors of Awaken are like stand up and just shake our booties right there at the party. It was, it was insane. It was so much fun. After this all happens, somebody's like, well, I think the carols are over. And we're like, no, no, more, more. And I say, oh, holy night, because I know that we have like a resident Mariah Carey you know, in melody, and I've heard her sing this song, and I don't really like Oh Holy Night. I, I never really liked the song. I was saying this earlier, and then Mel sang it at the Advent event, and I was like, oh, I'm, I'm a believer. <laughs> I, got, I got saved. So I'm like, Oh Holy Night, and so Mel starts, like, playing Oh Holy Night on this song, on this piano, and so, like, she's in it, and it, it's like one of those moments where, like, time starts to slow down. Do you know what I mean? And you, you, you experience it in a different way than like normal day-to-day life. And she is just slaying this song. And, and, and it's like the heavens opened. And there's this like transcendent, heavy, weighty, like spirit-drenched moment that many people in the room are in on. Like people's eyes are closed. People are crying. And at the same exact time, there, it was so loud in this house, people were just yammering and yakking and blah, 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 blah. And it was as if these two things were happening at the same time and they were like competing against one another in the same moment. And that's it, right? Like this is our life. Like this moment is always happening where the divine is inviting you and I to step into participating in the story of God and redemption and hope and joy and forgiveness and mercy and all the things. And sometimes we're just yakking. I'm yakking. Just stammering on. All the while, the bush is still burning. The music is always playing. And the invitation is always happening. The question of Advent, which is why one of the reasons that I love it, is are you listening? Can you hear it? Lastly, I'd say the star only led them so far. Like all the people, the Magi, the shepherds, Herod, the Torah scribes, they all had the info. They all knew. But the star only led them so far. And this is one of the things I love about this Bible or this story in the Bible and that I think is so amazing about God. It appears as if God is not calling all the shots. By that I mean you have choice. Like the star only leads you so far, but God is not up there pulling strings and making you do things that you don't want to do. It's as if there is a song that's been playing from the beginning of time and there is a, a, like a melody and you can say yes to it, join the orchestra, pick up an instrument and play along or not. And I think that's true. So this Advent, I ask you, like, where are you in this story? Are you like conspicuously absent? Like some of the people you would think would be there? Or have you said, I'm in, today, again, yes, I'm in. I want to play, I want to participate, I want my life to be in tune with this song that has been playing from the beginning of time and that continues to play right here and right now. Can I hear it, and will I say yes to it? That's the question of Advent. That's the question of this story. And I guess that's the question I have for you today. Whether you've heard it a hundred times, or maybe for the first time you're hearing it again. 
Are you in? Are you playing along? Is your life about the things Jesus becomes about? Justice and, and, and hope and forgiveness and mercy and, and grace and like... You can be. So say yes. Get in on that. And God will honor whatever choice you make. I think that's one of the things that I find so compelling about this story and about this picture, this understanding. If God is like that, I think that's, I think that's pretty profound. And so that's about all I have to say about the Magi. The rest, I guess, is up to you. So pray with me, if you will. God, this morning, as we take a few moments and carve out a little bit of silence in a really busy time of year, I pray that when I stop talking and we start listening, that you would speak, that you would remind us that the song has always been playing and the invitation is always happening. But that you're not going to make us do things we don't want to do. You came in a form of a baby for crying out loud. Inviting us to hold you near and pull you close. So whatever that looks like for each of my friends in this room this morning, we want to give you space to say and do what you might want to say and do. stand for a blessing as we close this morning. I've been doing this for 20 years as a pastor, and I hope that this story never stops piquing my curiosity. Tiger Woods once said, like, when he, when he doesn't get butterflies standing on the first tee, like, he knows it's, it's done. And I'm still compelled by this story. 20 years into it, I'm still like, could it be that even in the midst of war and violence and death all around us, when it seems like, it just seems really dark, that there is this flicker of hope, a light that has come and is coming and will come again, and God is just like ever committed to inviting us to this way. 
It's this way to home. It's this way to healing. It's this way to wholeness. It's this way to light. So people of God, would you be a remnant even today as you go to your workplace, as you go to your family gatherings, would you be a a light wherever you're found? Readying your heart for whatever God may be doing in the moment you find yourself in to say yes to that moment. Leave with this blessing knowing that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace, his love, his hope, his joy. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit church gathered, said together. Amen. Grace and peace, friends. If you need prayer for any reason, our prayer space is always available. Please use it. Happy Advent. To find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter. Play with the community. See you next time.